You're listening to Disconnect, the outdoor education podcast. I'm your host, Joël Charrière, and in today's episode, we'll be taking a look at how your passion for the outdoors could be the best thing that you bring to your outdoor ed classroom, or how it might actually be what's preventing you from achieving your outdoor ed goals. Later this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ben Schellenberg, professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Manitoba, and researcher interested in understanding how people can engage in their favorite activities, their true passions, in a way that produces the most benefits while avoiding potential costs. So stick around. Your reason and your passion are the rudder and the sails of your seafaring soul. If either your sails or your rudder be broken, you can but toss and drift, or else be held at a standstill in mid-seas. For reason, ruling alone, is a force confining, and passion, unattended, is a flame that burns to its own destruction. Therefore, let your soul exalt your reason to the height of passion that it may sing, and let it direct your passion with reason, that your passion may live through its own daily resurrection, and like the phoenix, rise above its own ashes. Khalil Gibran from The Prophet Passion might seem like a strange topic for an outdoor education podcast, but if you're listening to me right now, I'm confident in saying that you are passionate about education, about helping children reach their potential, and especially about being outdoors. You are passionate about nature. You might consider yourself a weekend warrior or simply a lover of good walks, but you all have this one thing in common. At one point in your life, Something sparked in you a deep connection and love for nature, and that love has never waned. We all hope that our children, our campers, scouts, or students, will develop this connection that we cherish. In many ways, this connection has enriched our lives, been our solace, confidant even at times. It's our ever-present source of inner calm and peace. Maybe it began when you were roasting marshmallows over a fire. Or maybe it was the first time you summited a mountain and looked down onto the landscape below. Perhaps it was gliding silently in a canoe over crystal clear water, only to sneak up on an unsuspecting moose around the bend. It may even have been an experience as simple as the first time you caught a frog when you were a kid. Regardless, whatever kindled that spirit within, I'm confident in saying that as camp counselors, scout leaders, teachers, and environmental educators, we all seek to help our youth see the world as we see it, which may very well be the problem. We've all been guilty of this, myself especially, but have you caught yourself asking a kid a question only to answer it yourself before giving them enough time to reflect on it? Alongside Outdoor Ed, I teach a lot of science, and uh, science minds love facts and objective truths. I often have to remind myself that truths weren't simply learnt, rather they were discovered, often by curious and especially creative minds. So how do we teach or foster creativity? Let's take a trip back in time and place ourselves in the fifth grade. And now let's go for a nature walk with mum and dad. And when mum says, why do you think that tree fell? What does your fifth grade brain think of? I'll give you a second to think. Now, before you get the answer out, of course, Dad goes ahead and explains the concept. And fifth grade you never got to say what you thought happened. That is, 
if you even had time enough to give it any thought at all. I hope you see where I'm going with this. We love being outdoors, and we likely learned a lot about the outdoors because we're passionate about it. But allowing kids to think, to be creative, and to wonder about the outdoors may very well be more helpful than giving them the answers could ever be. There's a popular quote often credited to Socrates that says, Wisdom begins with wonder. We want our students to become wise. I suppose we are all somewhere on a journey toward wisdom. But people become teachers because they believe in the power of young minds. The reason we're in the situation we're in when it comes to things like climate change, nature preservation, and conservation is because we haven't yet discovered the answers to our problems. So when you prevent a child from making his own hypothesis, from answering the question that you asked, ask yourself, for whom are you answering the question? I would argue that by preventing our students the time to hypothesize, we're preventing our kids from thinking creatively. We're teaching them that adults have the answers, when the truth is, we often don't. We don't need answers to problems we've already solved. So the next time you ask a question, don't answer it. In fact, just listen to the answers that you get, and when you think, no, it's actually this way, stop yourself and keep listening. You might be thinking to yourself that this is a totally bogus answer, but one day, it won't be a bogus answer. It will be the right answer. We just didn't know it yet. So don't let your passion for and your knowledge about the outdoors become a barrier. Be an adventurer with your students. Make discoveries with your students. Learn with them. Get onto their level and get excited about the small things they discover. Rediscover them along with your students. Do not be discouraged if you don't think that you're having the effect you had wanted. As Edward Osborne Wilson wrote in his memoir, The Naturalist, Better to be an untutored savage for a while, not to know the names or anatomical detail. Better to spend long stretches of time just searching and dreaming. What the famous biologist, naturalist, and faculty emeritus at Harvard University was trying to say is that there's no substitute at a young age than simply exploration, curious play, wonder, and hands-on experience. To cultivate passion for nature, we must allow students to discover it on their own. Your own passion should absolutely be your guiding light and the fire that keeps you going. What it shouldn't become is a source of frustration if you aren't achieving what you'd set out to do. Be passionate about every one of your students' small discoveries. Each one is a new bud on their metaphorical tree of life as a nature lover. Your job isn't to make it flower, but simply to water it daily. Hi, Dr. Schellenberg. Thanks for joining me. Hello. My first question to you is, how did you come to realize that you wanted to study passions, people's passions? Yeah, I, I've, I've been asked that a few, few times. I'm not, it, I, I originally, um, you know, when you start to, uh, to, to, when you start graduate school, you have to pick a project uh, in order to graduate. And so I was really, really interested in how people cope with stress. That was sort of my original uh, research interest. And so uh, I want to find a predictor of how people cope and manage when things aren't going well. 
And so I, I came down to a, a decision between uh, perfectionism and passion. And I, I chose passion. And so ever since then, I've just been uh, focusing on passion uh, nonstop since that time. <laughs> Interesting. So can you define passion for me? Like in the context that you study it, because you were choosing between two things, you chose passion. What, what is passion? It's, it's a very, very, you know, this is, this is step number one. Whenever you're studying something is you have to define it. Uh, passion is defined many different ways uh, for, for centuries. Uh, it used to be sort of a synonym for emotion. So we used to call, talk about our passions or pa- uh, crimes of passion, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, early in the, in the early 2000s, uh, psychologists uh, started to think more about this term passion. And they, uh, you kind of have to stake your claim. You sort of have to put your boundaries on, on the, the term. And so they, they treat it as a motivational variable. Uh, that people can have. So motivational force that people can have towards something, an activity, a person, an object, what have you. So it is a, it's a, it's a strong motivational force uh, towards something. That's passion. Interesting. So I, I mean, I'm a teacher and I think it would be fair to say that teachers are likely than very passionate individuals. I, I think most teachers are really driven by wanting to help other people and uh, likely often they're very passionate about what they teach. I, I would hope so. <laughs> I think the best teachers are, you have, are driven by that passion. So I read one of your articles, and it, it mentioned, uh, you know, it, I think it was called, You Have Passion, But You Have Self-Compassion. And I wanted to speak to you about this article because I thought it was really interesting. It, it spoke about how people react to their own failures or their own difficulties when they're very passionate about something. And I guess... You define self-compassion in there as, as a certain way of, of treating yourself when you, when you face challenges. Can you define that for me? Yeah, yeah. Self-compassion is another one of these terms that uh, came into force in the early 2000s in, in psychology. And uh, self-compassion is generally treated as a way uh, of, of relating to yourself when you're suffering or when things aren't going well. And it's been defined mm-hmm. as having three components, so three parts of self-compassion. Uh, there's self-kindness, so essentially being nice to yourself when things aren't going well. Common humanity, uh, so that's when you uh, believe that experiences are sort of part of the human condition, and that when, when things aren't going well, when you fail, uh, that, that's part of life, that's part of being an imperfect human being, and that's, that's okay. And the final component yeah. is mindfulness, and that's adopting a balanced perspective on your failures and your yeah. suffering. So not getting overly, uh, not ruminating about it, not getting overly identifying with your failures, but also not ignoring them and, and, and not uh, completely, di- completely discounting them. So self-compassion wow. involves those, I mean, those three components. I feel like this is just the perfect thing to talk about right now, right? Because teachers are working from home. I think most of the world, or at least North America, is working from home right now. <laughs> We're all facing these massive challenges in our work, in our work life, and some of us in our personal life also. I feel like these self-kindness and, and humanity is just like, wow, you're, you're really preaching right now, man. This is great stuff. <laughs> yeah. So when you look at people who exhibit self-compassion, what kind of benefits do you tend to see in these individuals? The, uh, the, the short answer is uh, all the benefits. Any, almost any wow. benefit you can think of, uh, it's, it's 
predicted by self positively predicted by self compassion. Um, in terms of things like psychological well-being, uh, people who are really self-compassionate uh, experience lower levels of depression, higher levels of mental health. Uh, in terms of physical health, there's even evidence that being self-compassionate can help you physically. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's so many benefits to your overall wellness. But in addition to that, there's benefits to motivation and to uh, your goal-driven behavior. People who are self-compassionate uh, are more motivated to improve themselves and to change, uh, which it's sort of like the best of, of both worlds. It's, it helps your motivation, helps uh, helps you pursue your goals, attain your goals, but it also helps you feel good. So uh, there's, there's just very, very few downsides that I, that I know of, of, of being self-compassionate. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Basically, if you are self-compassionate, it, it, it just opens up all of the doors, it sounds like. As far as we know, we have yet to discover anything, any major side effect of being self-compassionate. And believe me, I would love to identify a side effect of being self-compassionate. That would be such a <laughs> cool, interesting finding. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Very, very famous. Yeah. Uh, but so far, we, we have yet to, to discover any, any serious side effects. There, there might be a few uh but it's it's completely overwhelmed by the by the benefits. So in the article, you mentioned that some people struggle in exhibiting, or that maybe they're afraid of these kind of self kindness or self compassionate behaviors. Um, why why is this? Why why do people struggle in being self compassionate? There does seem to be uh, some some resistance to self compassion uh, by people out there, and this is mainly from a lot of research that's been done by by sitting down with people and talking to them and talking about self compassion and about what uh, why they may not be exhibiting self compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's common for people to report that they think that self compassion means you're being lazy uh, or mm-hmm. complacent or giving up. Um, and there is a fear that it could uh, not help them achieve their goals if they're uh, really, really nice to themselves when, when things go off track. There's a belief out there, perhaps, that uh, being hard on yourself, that's the way to, to get the job done. Right, to kind of just toughen um, up and, and you it, know, roll with it. it. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, and like I said, it seems, as far as we know from the research that's coming out, that that's precisely the, the wrong way to do it. Being nice to yourself is the way to, to achieve your goals. Yeah. So in that same study, I, I read about something called the dualistic model of passion. And I think it's really important to understand this whole discussion about passion, what this dualistic model is. Do you mind elaborating on that a bit? Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, Earlier I, I said that I, I really hope that pe- teachers have high levels of passion. Um, that was sort of true. That was not... Uh, there's a little bit more to the story than that. Uh, the dualistic model of passion, um, which was proposed by some researchers from Quebec, actually, um, and they proposed that passion can come in a couple of different varieties. And the variety of passion that you have really matters for the role that it has in your life. Uh, the first variety is a harmonious passion. And this is when uh, your passion is autonomous. It's a, it's a balanced part of your life. Uh, you feel in control of your passion. It doesn't overwhelm you. Uh, you can choose when to uh, engage in your passion, but you have no problem taking a break. Mm-hmm. So very much a harmonious part of your life. Mm-hmm. The second variety of passion is an obsessive passion. And this is when uh, your passion consumes you. Um, you it, overwhelms, it overwhelms your identity. 
mm. uh, develop an uncontrollable urge to pursue your passion. And so uh, really what matters in terms of predicting things like how happy you are, uh, the goals you pursue, uh, it's, it's the type of passion that you have. That seems to matter. That's interesting. I, I feel like I've seen a bit of both in, uh, in teachers kind of just that I've met over the years. I think there's a lot of teachers who, are, who have amazing qualities and that they're very passionate about what they teach and, and it shows in their teaching. But I think for, and it's certainly a very small fraction, but I, I've, I've also te- seen teachers that kind of just look like they're consumed by it and they just, they, you know, that it's the classic teacher problem that you can always do more for your students. Um, and you're always thinking about what's in their best interest. So I, I think that's a really important uh, distinction to make, that there's the harmonious passion and um, the kind of obsessive passion. So when you started studying the link between passion and self-compassion, what did you expect to find? Well, uh, generally, um, uh, harmonious passion tem- tends to predict more sort of adaptive types of ways of relating to yourself mm-hmm. and uh there has been uh before we conducted that, that study we, we we were aware of some other research that had linked harmonious passion with greater senses of mindfulness and lower levels of defensive behavior which we thought would be incompatible with self-compassion so we thought that uh the more harmonious passion you had towards your favorite activity uh the more self-compassionate you would be when when you fail in that activity um and with obsessive passion uh, we had known that obsessive passion predicted more uh, defensiveness. We know that people who are highly obsessive, they're preoccupied, they ruminate about their, their activity. Yeah. And for that reason, we thought that obsessive passion would predict lower levels of self-compassion. They'd be a little bit more uh, mean to themselves when things aren't going well. And is this what you found? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, pretty, uh, uh, it, was, it was pretty nice. It really supported that idea, that harmonious passion is more uh, predictive of, of self-compassion. So can people waver between harmonious passions and obsessive passions? Or is it kind of distinct well, that you are or kind of more ingrained and you just tend to do one thing more than the next? Well, we all have, uh, uh, passionate people have a little bit of both in them at any time, harmonious and obsessive passion. There's sort of, so sort of like two levels within you. And those levels uh, can vary, and we've done a little bit of research looking at how passion changes over time. And generally, the the story is that uh, passion can change, uh, but not that much. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're so a person who exhibits kind of obsessive behaviors has a more difficult time reeling that back and turning that into a harmonious passion, and vice versa. I guess a person who lives a harmonious passion is unlikely to kind of veer off course and become obsessive about something, if I understood well? I think this such a good question. Uh, now, 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 that, now we're veering into uncharted territories until, <laughs> in terms of what the research has. I mean, we're, we're, so I'd be sort of irresponsible to, to, uh, to say we, we know precisely what, what happens with changes in passion over time. Generally speaking, people who have a passion that we conduct research with uh, they've, they've been passionate about their, their activity for many, many, many years, and they spend many, many hours a week doing their favorite activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's unlikely that that relationship is going to change uh, 
change too dramatically over a short period of time. Yeah. Having said that, there is a, there are some experimental manipulations uh, that has been shown to be somewhat effective at uh, making one type of passion more uh, available to somebody than others. So simply asking people to think about a time when they're either harmonious or obsessed about their favorite activity, mm -hmm. uh, those people tend to act a little bit more harmonious or obsessed uh, in a, in a, in a, at the moment, in the moment. So you can elicit one type of passion or the other uh, momentarily, but over the course of a, over the short term or the medium term, um, it's, it's unknown how, how much those, those passions fluctuate. It doesn't appear that they do uh, very much. Yeah. Interesting. So the real reason I wanted to talk to you is that, uh, you know, this, this podcast is about outdoor education. I teach outdoor education and there's, there's real uphill battles facing outdoor educators in terms of getting kids outside. There's a massive uh, fear of litigation and liability, decreased funding, decreased uh, and certainly competing interests. There's a lot of extracurriculars that are always competing and, and kids are super scheduled. But uh, all of these things can be really discouraging to passionate nature lovers who are wanting to take their classrooms outside. So is there something that a person can do to try to avoid or to, to maybe to just try to stay on that more harmonious side that despite all of the challenges and everything that you kind of, kind of want to forge ahead and keep trying to do the things that you're passionate about despite the challenges? Is there, is there something that, you know, I, I guess what I really want to know is how can people learn to become self-compassionate? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, uh, well, there's, there's two things there. There's the passion and there's the self-compassion. Uh, both of which are, are critical. Being, being self-compassionate uh, is, uh, is a skill that can be learned. And uh, there are, uh, well, many workshops that you can attend and many programs that are now uh, out there. People have, uh, the, the science is at a point where people are really trying to get the word out yeah. uh, to help people be self-compassionate. There's, there's, there, there are, it is a skill that, uh, that can be taught uh, to treat yourself nicely just as you would uh, how you would relate to a friend who is struggling yeah. uh, instead of uh, treating yourself like you would a best friend type of thing. Uh, in terms of passion and in terms of developing a harmonious passion uh, towards, uh, towards teaching, towards, be, towards outdoor education, uh, again, we're, we're, in a, we're in a place where we don't know, uh, have, have a great deal of, uh, of recommendations on that, but we do know uh, that a passion in your life is connected with other parts of your life. So it's not just focusing on outdoor education um, to, to develop that harmonious passion. Mm. Um, so there's been some several studies looking at the needs that are satisfied in your favorite activity and needs that are satisfied in other parts of your life. So we're really looking at a speaking, holistic approach to, to the wellness here. Exactly. Yeah, that's totally it's. It, adopting a more holistic approach. If you're in a situation when you're satisfying uh, your psychological needs in your favorite activity, in outdoor education, but you're not getting those need, needs met elsewhere in your life, that seems to be a recipe for obsessive passion. Oh. If that's the only place where you can get those needs uh, to be connected with others, to feel competent, to feel autonomous, yeah. uh, that seems to be the way to be obsessed. Whereas if you're getting those needs satisfied in other places as well, Mm -hmm. then that's more conducive to a harmonious passion. So a more of a holistic approach would be the way to go. Excellent. 
Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day, Dr. Schellenberg. Well, thank you. Dr. Schellenberg is a professor and researcher at the University of Manitoba in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management. I listened to the interview with Dr. Schellenberg probably 10 times over, just trying to wrap my head around the real goldmine of information that he shared with me. I think my favorite parts boil down to this. As a teacher and as an individual, ask yourself, what type of passionate individual are you? I think understanding if you have obsessive type behaviors or if you have harmonious type behaviors is going to help you in your teaching and figuring out how to incorporate more outdoor activities into your teaching. And once you have that, learn to be self-compassionate. I love when he said, learn to treat yourself like you would treat your best friend. You know, it's a skill that can be taught. And so I think a lot of school divisions and a lot of jurisdictions, they're really pushing mindfulness on us. Don't let that be lip service. Learn to be mindful about your teaching as with everything else in your life. I think if you can really focus on what's important and do it deliberately, you will be a lot more satisfied with the activities that you try to incorporate into your teaching. The last one, the huge one for me, is that it's, it's got to be holistic. It's got to be connected to all other parts of your life. Don't let it take over and make sure that you are content with what you're doing before you start incorporating new things. Start with an already established unit, something that you're comfortable with, something you've taught lots of times before, and you're just trying to think about, you know what, I'm happy with the way it is now, and so you are satisfied with this unit as it is. And now try to incorporate nature into it. Try to get, you know, it might start with a walk. It might start with simply going outside. But incorporating that into something that's already good, something that already satisfies your needs is going to be the best way to start incorporating nature, environmental, place-based education into your teaching. But most of all, don't forget that you've been tasked with the impossible task. As teachers, you can always improve, you can always do more. So start with the lesson you're comfortable with already. Bring in one small change that involves nature. And most importantly, if things don't go like you thought they would, be kind to yourself about it and simply try it again. Thanks for listening to Disconnect, the outdoor education podcast. If you enjoy the content I'm producing, please subscribe and tell your friends about it. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me at disconnectpodcast.com at protonmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Next episode, I'll be speaking with a member of Scotland's eco-drama theatre company who will be talking to us about how drama, storytelling, and nature all meet in the playgrounds of Glasgow elementary schools. I'm Joël Cherrière. See you next time.